Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training topics, and interview experts in the field of behavior. Today's episode includes myself, Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And today I am joined by the amazing Emily Strong, a first train home and from Beaks to Barks. Welcome, Emily. We are pumped to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So a few months ago, Emily and I were on a call discussing the best ways to teach clients training skills. Not everybody got a dog to become a dog trainer. So it can be tricky sometimes training folks how to actually do the mechanics of dog training. So in other words, we were talking about how to modify people behavior in order to modify canine behavior. Emily had shared a bunch of awesome ideas, and I thought, wait, we need to record this. This is such a great idea for a podcast, not only for dog owners so they understand the process, but also a great idea for dog trainers. So before we dive in, Emily, can you start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and all the exciting things that you're up to? Because you're up to quite a few. <laughs> yes, that's a bit of an understatement. Uh, I am... <laughs> I'm a behavior consultant. I've been working with animals since I was 11 in shelters and vet clinics. I was a vet tech for like 17 years. Um, but I've been specifically working in behavior as a behavior consultant for a little over a decade now. And uh, so, yes, got a lot going on. In addition to my uh, personal behavior consulting business, which is from Beaks to Barks, um, which we're based in Salt Lake City, but my business partner, Christina, and I uh, do consults long distance for people all over the country and in other countries as well. Um, but in addition to that behavior consulting business, my other business partner, Ali Bender, and I, um, <laughs> uh, we, we um, have created a program for shelters and rescue groups called First Train Home, where we go in and help uh, people who work in shelters and rescue groups um, to accurately identify the behaviors they're seeing and come up with some practical solutions for how to address those behaviors, given the constraints of their organization. And then because Allie and I didn't have enough going on, we also decided to write a book. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, <laughs> so we have a book uh, coming out in April or May, hopefully, knock on wood, about canine enrichment. It's going to be published through Dogwise. Our working title is Enrichment for the Real World, although we may change that between now and then. We haven't decided yet, but probably <laughs> the title is going to stick since we're so close to publication date. Totally. Um, so uh, book on canine enrichment uh, from Dogwise, probably called Enrichment for the Real World. So that's going to be coming out in the next couple of months as well. Yeah, we're really excited about that. And I will make sure to link all of... Um, Emily's amazing projects in our show notes. And I'm really excited about that book for so many reasons, because I think, I think a lot of our clients, they like the idea of enrichment, like mental stimulation, enrichment. I, I think it's a really, at least for my clients, it's really fun for them. And they really, once they understand how to do it and how it can actually reduce behavior issues, it, be, it, it 
they sort of get on board pretty quickly to that. So I'm really excited to be able to share that resource with everyone. Yeah, we we had really um, we were really excited about writing on this topic because Dogwise was telling us that um, they were having a hard time finding a middle ground between like these really academic textbooks on enrichment and, you know, how to stuff a Kong dot com. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. <laughs> and for us, and you know, enrichment is so much more than just about play or toys. Um, it's really about meeting all of an animal's needs and um and really, that's kind of the top of the humane hierarchy. That's the first stop is making mm-hmm. sure their needs are, needs are being met. So for us, um, it was really exciting to write about this topic comprehensively and say, look, there's there's so much more to enrichment than just throwing a toy at a dog. Um, and uh, and people think that it's adding work to their day when, in fact, um, there are so many ways that it can actually make you're caring for your dog easier. So totally. yeah, we're really excited about this book coming out. It's, it's been yeah. a long-term project for us. And congratulations. It's like, it's like giving birth, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> you're like, Oh my gosh, I, I, I'll never forget when somebody asked me after I published my book, like the day after they were like, what's your second book? And I'm like, what? That's like asking a woman who just gave birth to a child being like, when's your next kid? And you're like, no. So I'm so excited for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like a three, three year gestation period. Like we, we're going <laughs> to totally. take a while before we uh, make another before one. We, totally. <laughs> yeah. So going back to our phone call that day, and it was me that called Emily and I was asking her questions because I know that she's really, really good at this. And so if I recall correctly, there were a few different ideas that you had shared on the call that are worth talking about today. And so I sort of divided it into four topics. And so um, <clears throat> these topics include, you know, using an efficient explanation process. That's, that's the first one. The second one is using verbal reinforcement to help the client understand when they're doing things correctly. Um, the third one was choosing an incompatible behavior for our clients. Most of our, most dog trainers know that we do that for dogs, um, where it's, you know, the owner says, I don't want my dog to do this. And we say, okay, well, what would you like your dog to do instead? We're actually going to talk about that concept with people. Um, and then lastly, it was analogies that stick. Um, so let's get started with number one. I'm just going to let Emily dive into the efficient explanation process. Yeah. So I, I actually got this from tag teach, uh, whom I owe a, a great deal. Um, I took a tag te- teach workshop a few years ago and I learned so many things from that workshop. It was so profoundly impactful on my practice that I require all of my apprentices to, either read their book. They wrote a book called um, Don't Nag Tag, which is fabulous, or take a workshop. I require my apprentices to, to in some way, learn tag teach. Um, so I learned a lot from that workshop, but one of the most kind of important things that stuck with me was something that they call the focus funnel. So the focus funnel is um, you start by explaining the what, the why, the how of what you're doing. You start with the explanation, giving them the, the background information. And then after you're done with that, you kind of crystallize that into a clear set of instructions. 
And then you further crystallize those instructions into to really short, um, truncated versions of that instruction. And then you demonstrate it for the client and then you have the client do it using your kind of truncated instructions. Um, so I use that focus funnel all the time in teaching clients. Um, it's, it's pretty much the only way I teach now. So a, a, good, a good example of that is how I would e even teach them how to prime a marker. Uh, I used to just say, yeah, mark treat, click treat, click treat, which sounds good, right? It sounds succinct. The problem it's, is it's not giving them enough information about what they're supposed to be doing. So you have to be succinct while also giving them um, enough instructions to, to really help them. So after taking this tag teach workshop, I, um, explain what the marker is, why we use it, when we use it, when we don't need to use it. And then I give them four instructions and I explain these instructions beforehand. So I start by explaining to them that one of the biggest mistakes that people make in training is um, they don't trust the training process. And so they're kind of waving food around in the animal's face, trying trying to keep the animal's attention. Um, but I explained to them that that would be as distracting as if you were at work and your boss was waving your paycheck in your face. It wouldn't facilitate you being yeah. productive. <laughs> It'd be really, really distracting, right? Um, so And stressful. And stressful, right. Yeah. So um, I tell people... We, we want to put the food away, keep it still and out of sight. So find a good home base for your treat hand. And I, I show them, I like to have my hand base at my solar plexus. Some people prefer collarbone behind their back in their, uh, you know, bait bag or treat pouch, whatever they're using. But I, I, my home base is my solar plexus. Um, so that's what a home base is. So then I, I give them the instructions. You're going to make your marker sound and then you're going to give the animal the treat. You don't wait, immediately treat. And then you put your hand back at home base and then you pause long enough for the animal to finish eating. So you're not going to wait a long time. You're just going to wait until they're done eating what you just gave them. So your instructions are, Mark, treat, home base, pause. So we distill it down into those four steps. Mark, treat, home base, pause. So then I show them that. I do it with their dog or cat or parrot, horse, whatever we're working with. Mark, treat, home base, pause. As I'm saying the words, I, I do the actions. And then I hand them the food and I let them do it. And the first one or two times they do it, I'll, I'll give them those, those tag points, mark, treat, home base, pause. And I have found, uh, it is so much easier and more efficient to use that kind of tag teach focus funnel. Something that seems really easy and obvious to us, establishing a marker <laughs> seems so, so yeah. easy. Um, but I've talked to so many of my colleagues who are frustrated with how um, difficult it seems sometimes to get clients to figure that out. And mm -hmm. by, by using the tag teach focus funnel, um, that process is so fast and simple now that we just blow through it in a couple minutes and then we can get onto the real work of training. And then I use the focus funnel again to teach them whatever is next. 
Um, but yeah, I, I can't recommend tag teach highly enough. It, it changed the way I teach people for sure. Yeah. And I, um, after you and I spoke, I used it and I have to, and so I have a, a client right now we're training her service dog puppy and, the whole notion of pausing made me feel so good. And then like the whole idea that we had this focus funnel and I could give her like short, quick um, moments of feedback. And I, I didn't have to talk a lot. And she, she's doing so she's a 16 year old kid and she's doing so great. She doesn't feel the need to have the treat ready all the time. Like most dog owners do like they they don't trust like you said in the process they they don't trust in the marker word whether it's a clicker or a verbal marker and they they want to have that paycheck waving in front of the dog's face to have them do that and she's not in that place she's just sort of like okay i i this is this is my four-step process and this is what we do and it it was so helpful for me to teach her how to do that especially because we have not just a pretty quick training process. We have a, a lifelong process of being a like a her maintaining her service dog's behavior, right? So, um, so that was awesome. I loved it. Yeah, I, yeah. So thank you. Tag teach is incredible. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you, Teresa, and who, whom else? Joan. Joan. That's right. That's right. Thank you, ladies. We will link to you as well in the show notes. So let's move on to the second technique that you use when working with clients. And that is using verbal reinforcement to let the clients know that they are on the right path. So how do you do that? So I, I took that concept of tag teach and um, started using it to give this immediate feedback Every time I would see the client doing something that I liked, that I wanted them to do. And what happened kind of organically, I don't think I ever sat down and planned to do this. But what happened is when they were doing it well-ish, well enough, right, I would say, I say something like, yes, 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 mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. But when it, it's just beautiful, perfect, <laughs> flawless uh, because I would get excited about it, I would, I ended up saying something like perfect, <laughs> you know, where yeah. I'm like, oh my God, that was professional quality, like professional level training. Right. Especially uh -huh. if I'm sort of, um, phasing them out of me giving those tag points, um, and letting them just sitting back and letting them train without any kind of prompts or anything when they mm -hmm. get it beautifully, I just go perfect. What mm -hmm. I found is that um, without even explaining to them that I'm giving them kind of a tiering process by giving them verbal feedback when they do it correctly enough uh, with it, just a yes, mm -hmm. but then giving them a more excited one, like perfect when they get it beautifully, I didn't even have to ask them to shape their behavior or hone it or, or perfect it. They start working towards the thing that got the perfect, um, and offering that behavior more than, mm -hmm. than if I, I think when I used to be like, okay, that was almost great, but could you, your timing could be a little faster, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Shut up, Emily. Just like give them this kind of good, better, best feedback and they'll figure it out on their own. I still do. 
if I can tell that I haven't given clear enough instructions and the client is struggling to um, ch- correct their mechanics or improve their mechanics on their own, I will stop for a little bit and focus funnel it and say, okay, that part was, was correct. That's what I wanted. But did you notice how when you moved your body this way, your dog got more distracted or whatever? What I found is that um, if my instructions haven't been clear enough and so they're struggling with mechanics, I will go ahead and pause training and focus funnel it and say something like, Okay, so that part was perfect. Your timing mm-hmm. was great there. But did you notice how when you moved your arm around, your dog got more excited and it was harder for them to stay still? So this time what I want you to do is, and then I'll give more clear instructions, tag point it, and go back mm-hmm. to just the, the quick verbal feedback. Um, so if there, if it's a situation like that where the I didn't give clear enough instructions so the client is struggling with their mechanics – I'll pause and reframe it. But I found that a bunch of explanations or corrections just get in the way of efficiency. Totally. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. Totally. And I feel like I lean into that sometimes and I'm like, Marissa, stop talking. Yeah. Simplify it. Marissa, stop talking. Simplify it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that those little quick. Yes. Yes good. You got it. And then when they do it really beautifully, perfect. That actually encourages more uh, of kind of them honing their behavior on their own than if mm-hmm. I was doing just a bunch of like chatty stuff. Totally. And then, it, and then you have to wonder like, are they getting it correct because they're actually learning or because I'm sort of, you know, giving them feedback consistently, like, are they going to be able to do that same thing after I leave? And so I like this idea of like, they're actually tweaking their own behavior. Um, cause that's probably a lasting learning experience than us actually just telling them what to do each time. And so do you happen? And I, I believe I asked you this before, but you don't, you don't tell them about like, good, better, perfect, right? Like, like it just sort of happens, right? It's not like you're like, when I, when I work with you, I'm going to start marking or I'm going to start re like reinforcing your behavior, right? You're just sort of doing it. And then there's an understanding. Correct. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like it's necessary to do a bunch of explanation. And also I think my concern with doing a lot of explaining is it might make people more self-conscious if I'm like, Mm, if you do it, okay, I'm going to say yes. If you do it perfectly, I'm going to say perfect. I think then there'd be almost, um, uh, it would almost serve as a distraction where they would be more focused on, are they doing it? you know, better as opposed to when I'm just giving them that feedback, they're focused on training the dog on training the dog. Yeah. Not I love like that. stage fright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I know it's so it's like, it makes me so sad when clients are like, I'm nervous and you're like, Oh no, you're okay. Like we're just going to have fun, you know? And they're like, Oh, okay. But they are. Yeah. It's an, it's a totally new skill. I mean, it's, Again, like I said in the beginning of the, of the episode, not everybody got a dog to become a dog trainer. Most people didn't. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to our – actually, hold on. Let's recap before before we move on. So we talked about step one. She uses an, an efficient explanation process, which is thanks to our friends at Tag Teach. 
And then step two, she's uh, Emily's using a lot of verbal reinforcement to let the client know that they are on the right path. Um, so we'll move on to the third technique, and that is choosing incompatible behavior. So what what do we mean here? So I think most people come from a background of using a lot of force and corrections. And even if they're ideologically on the same page and they want to learn better ways to train, um, muscle memory gets in the way, right? It's, it's really powerful. <laughs> um, so what I've found is that when people are struggling with their mechanics, whether or not they realize it because of old habits, the most efficient way to get around that is by um, incorporating into their training instructions incompatible behaviors that may have nothing to do with um, training the dog. It's more just about um, sort of getting around the, the muscle memory that they're struggling with. So the most common example I've, I feel like where I most frequently use incompatible behaviors is when teaching loose leash walking. Uh, the way that I teach loose leash walking is a variation of um, a technique that Karen Pryor came up with called reinforce for position. I do it slightly differently than the instructions on her website, but I start with teaching the dog while we're standing still to just stay at our side instead of in front of us. And then we practice taking one step at a time. So the dog is learning the concept of I start walking when you start, I stop when you stop. Mm -hmm. And then over time, we increase the amount of time the dog is walking next to the person. And then, of course, mm -hmm. we incorporate distractions in different locations and all of the things necessary for proofing a behavior. Yeah. But so many of my clients are so used to using a leash correction or a leash pop when the dog blasts ahead of them yeah. that even if they don't realize they're doing it, <laughs> if yeah. they think that so. they're following my instructions, but they're really anxious about the dog not getting ahead of them. So they're mm -hmm. pulling up on the leash or popping the leash or something. Um, it, it, it's such a common thing for them to do and they don't even realize that they're doing it. Um, that mm -hmm. they can get really frustrated. So, I started incorporating into the loose leash walking instructions uh, to have their leash hand resting against their rib cage. And then I, the tag point for that is hand to ribs, which I often distill down to just ribs after I've been working with the client for a while. Mm -hmm. So I can see them starting to get anxious. As, even if the dog is loose leash walking at a perfect heel, no problems. The longer the client walks, a lot of times the more anxious. I think they're afraid yeah. that their dog is going to blast ahead. And I can see that their little hands sneaking up. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I'll just say ribs. And, and that prompts them to put their leash hand on their rib cage. They can't be giving leash corrections if their hand is resting on their rib cage. It's an incompatible behavior. Now, obviously... Us having our hand on our rib cage has nothing to do with teaching the dog loose leash walking. That's not a necessary component to teaching the dog. 
but it is a necessary component to teaching the person an incompatible behavior so that they don't fall back on that muscle memory that kind of trips them up as they train. Yeah, love this. And I've seen so many clients improve dramatically with their loose leash walking Mm -hmm. after prompting that incompatible behavior, the rib, the ribs cue, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because they're, they're not getting in their own way anymore. They're not tripping themselves up with their muscle memory. And that is such an improvement on when I used to train before I learned these skills, I would just feel like, gosh, you know, why is this client why is this so hard for this client? Like, why, why can't they yeah. get this? You know, and now it's like, I, I know the answer to this. I know the science of behavior. I know that incompatible behaviors are what we do. Now I've just learned how to do that with people, with my human yeah. students. And it just makes training so much cleaner and more efficient and uh, more, more fun for the client. It, it's not, it, it's not a battle of wills anymore between the client and the dog. You know, now yeah. they're working together as a team and there's not that unnecessary conflict. So. Yeah, I love that. I love, love, love that. And so can I ask, like, when you are, are you so good at this at this point where you're like, you're in the middle of a training session, it's not really a focus funnel or an incompatible behavior that you're used to. You can just sort of go, you notice something that the client's doing and you're like, ah. Oh, that's not really that great. And then you point it out in your brain and then you choose an incompatible behavior and then you, you move on the fly with, you know, teaching that person a different way to interact with their dog. Like, do you feel that fluid in this process now? Sometimes there are definitely situations in which I've done this enough that I can sort of, um, see potential issues coming down the pipeline and be proactive about training the client so that that just never becomes an issue. Um, but there are still challenges there. There are definitely challenges where I, it really makes me think, and there's some trial and error. Um, a good example is I have a, a client that I started working with a few months ago and she has two dogs and the dogs don't like to be separated And Mm -hmm. she, my initial recommendation for training was put one dog in the backyard while we train with the other one. You can give them some kind of long-term project to work on, like a frozen Kong or something. Um, But, but we just need to separate the dogs when we're training. But it, it Mm -hmm. caused so much anxiety for her that she was really Mm -hmm. distracted and her dog was really feeding off of her stress. And, um, so I was like, okay, how do I, how do I get around this? Because separating the dogs is a stressor for all of them. (laughs) Um, so I had to kind of pause the training and try to, um, work on like a Karen overalls relaxation protocol with both dogs at the same time with their mats or beds on either side of me so that I could sort of reinforce them at the same time. And, um, then I was like, okay, how do I teach a client how to do this? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it was worth it. I mean, it took some time and some figuring out and figuring out what, uh, tag teach instructions I needed to give her, um, and incompatible behaviors I needed to instruct her to do to kind of, uh, circumvent some of the challenges. Mm -hmm. But after, uh, after, 
I would say it, it took us probably half an hour <laughs> to, to, to troubleshoot. Yeah. But after we figured it out, we sort of like, you know, got into our groove and we got through it. So I think, you know, as with most things, fluency doesn't happen all at once. Like, it, you yeah. know, there's it's cyclical, right? You kind of come back over mm-hmm. and just improve the same things. You hone your skills the more you come back to them. So, yeah, sometimes sometimes it's it's still sometimes uh, I feel like an idiot, like I don't know what I'm doing, like I'm a newbie. <laughs> Yeah. And I was just telling you before we hopped on to record this, right, that I'm taking Susan Friedman's course right now. And I'm like, I don't know anything. How is this possible that I've been doing this for like close to 12 years? And I I feel like I don't know anything. And so I think I think it's nice. The reason why I ask that is because I think it's nice for not only um each other, but also like any any new trainers or even seasoned trainers that are listening right now is that like we're all learning and we're all figuring it out and some things we get really good at. And then all of a sudden something changes and we learn that the thing we were good at, um, we could tweak it even differently. And so I think it's, I think there's some, um, normalizing that needs to happen around that. And that, that, that this is a process and it's, it's not even just a process of training. It's just life period. So, um, you know, I was saying to Emily, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm learning and being pushed out of my comfort zone right now, which is a good thing. Um, I, so. I, yeah. I think people feel such a pressure to be an expert that totally. any kind of acknowledgement that you have more to learn or that maybe what you thought you knew wasn't the complete whole picture um, yeah. is really stressful for some people. And I the more, the longer I'm in this profession and the more times that this has happened to me of realizing I don't actually know what I'm talking about, yeah. um, the more comfortable <laughs> I have gotten with that. And, um, I actually found a Ted talk. I wish I could remember the name of the speaker. Um, but the Ted talk we'll, is on, we'll on being up. wrong. It, I think the title oh. of the Ted talk is on being wrong. That's and awesome. she talks about how uh, being wrong is such a, a beautiful thing to get comfortable with because we are totally. all wrong always, like all the time. Yeah. Like nobody has perfect knowledge about anything and everything is more complex than we want it to be. And it's, and being comfortable with being wrong and still having more to learn um, is the best way to live really totally so yeah yeah I was I was on a work trip this past weekend and someone said oh this is Marissa she's an expert in behavior and I was like uh I don't really know if I like that (laughs) Marissa's a learner of behavior but but you know the word expert is actually like I think it's people strive to do that or they strive to be that and um it doesn't really leave a lot of room for being wrong. Right. Um, and so I love, I love that idea. Well, I'll do some digging for the Ted talk and link it in our show notes. Um, so lastly, you've already done some of this, but you've got some really, really fun ones in here, but you use some good analogies to help clients understand the training process, which I think is really great. So can you tell us a few of the ones that you do? Yeah, I, I, I tend to work a lot in analogies and I think that's because that's my dad is like that. He, uh, shout out to my dad who who (laughs) spent my childhood teaching, teaching me through analogies. And so I find it really, it's a comfortable 
um, teaching tool for me because that's kind of what I grew up with my whole life. Um, but I, I think there are three that I, I tend to use most frequently. Um, and the first is the kind of the one that I, I touched on a little bit earlier about the home base Mm -hmm. being, being, um, like the food is like the paycheck. And so I'll, I'll tell people, you have to think of your home base as the bank and the, the payment doesn't come out until the job is done. So Mm -hmm. if you're, if the animal is still working and you start to pull that money out of the bank, you're going to distract them from their work. So Mm -hmm. it's really important to leave that money in the bank until not only after the job is done, but if it's a type of training where we're using a marker, you also wait until after the paycheck stub has been delivered. So I, I call the marker a paycheck stub. It's like, yes, the job is completed. Good job. You're getting paid soon momentarily right yeah. <laughs> um and so that explaining using that analogy to people allows me to be really efficient in pointing out when their mechanics are um have leave something to be desired yeah. so if i see somebody starting to move their food hand as they're marking or before the job is done all i have to say is paycheck stub and they immediately that their, their food hand goes back to home base. Um, so it's just a very efficient, clear way of explaining a concept to them and then reminding them of it in the moment. Yeah. So that's one that that I use a lot. Um, another, I don't even know if this would be an analogy, but, uh, it, I guess it kind of sort of is when I'm helping a client proof a behavior and their dog, is having a hard time doing the behavior because there's a lot of distractions in the environment. It helps. I have found it helps to explain to clients, the environment is paying them. They are getting paid by the environment. Mm -hmm. And so if we want them to come back and do the job for us, we have to increase our pay. We have to pay Mm -hmm. them more, um, or make the job easier or both. So mm-hmm. um, I'll kind of do like a balance scales hand motion <laughs> and I'll say, you know, when the when the environment gets harder, you have to make the behavior easier. Mm-hmm. And so I can if I see that maybe we need to to, to proof a little more, they've put the dog in a situation that's a little too high distraction for that dog's current skill level. I'll just kind of make the the balance scales hand motion and the clients just immediately get it. <laughs> yeah, I totally. don't even have to say anything. I just do my That's hands. That's so awesome. <laughs> and I they're like, it. oh, right. I need to increase my rate of reinforcement or drop back a few steps or yeah. like, it's just such a simple way to communicate all of these training concepts very yeah. quickly. Like uh, there's so many things about proofing that, that yeah. we need to be aware of in this moment in time. <laughs> Here's my little, hand prompt <laughs> my yeah, little balance I love it. scales and they get it and it's really um it's really beautiful to see them sort of have this awareness of the mm-hmm. the situation that they're putting their dog in and how they need to to change it um i have i've stolen this one and i um am not doing the hand prompts so i'm super pumped to do the hand prompts <laughs> so <Yay>. thank you <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. It, it also it. makes clients smile when they see me do this. They're like, yeah, oh, totally. yeah. <laughs> so instead of becoming this thing that they're embarrassed by or frustrated yeah, by, you're like, 
take four, take four steps back or like, yeah, I mean, the whole thing, it just is like, oops, let's see, let's try something different. It almost becomes like an inside joke between us. So it's no longer something that they're frustrated or embarrassed about. They're like, oh, got it. Yeah. You know, so it's fun. It's fun to turn that into something that's, um, you know, the clients Positive in the know. Or, yeah. yeah. Instead of being something like, oh, you messed up training, you lug, yeah. right? Yeah, lug. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think the third analogy that I tend to use a lot is um, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> so this started <laughs> because when Allie and I teach workshops for First Train Home, in the portion where we're teaching people training mechanics, we have a series of games that we teach them to help them hone um, different aspects of training mechanics. And... Um, the game that we play to teach people about the concept of splitting and lumping is called the peanut butter and jelly sandwich game. And uh, what we do is we essentially say, I'm an alien from another planet and <laughs> I have learned English. And uh, so I know I know all of the, your words and I know, you know, what the word signifies, but I have never uh, made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before. And I've heard. They're amazing. So I would like somebody to teach me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But first, everybody write down how many steps you think it takes to teach an alien how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so everybody, you know, writes it down. And I'm, I'm not going to give away any spoilers because if anybody attends a workshop, I don't want them to cheat. Uh, but <laughs> needless to say, everybody underguesses significantly how many steps it takes. And so then we play the game and somebody has to give me these instructions. And invariably, what people assume is the first step is actually the first, you know, 20 something steps. Wow. Because our assumptions are based on our knowledge. What we mm -hmm. think they have to learn is based on this entire paradigm that we live in that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. And so when I play this alien who doesn't really know any of those things because I'm not from that planet, um, people realize exactly how many steps they have to break this down into in order to teach an alien how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so it's a really powerful lesson on splitting and how so many times when um, the animal is not learning the behavior the way we want them to, it's not because they're mm -hmm. stubborn or stupid. It's because we haven't split the, the behavior up into nearly enough steps. Mm -hmm. So when I, I, I do this, these training mechanics games, not just for workshops, but also group classes um, and it's really convenient because when I'm working with somebody who's attended a class or a workshop and has played the peanut butter and jelly game and they're trying to train their animal something and I can see that the step that they're asking is too big. The animal's not getting it. All I have to do is just say PB and J and they're like, oh, yeah. And it's beautiful. I found I don't have to tell them how to break that into smaller steps. 
Yeah. Because they've already learned, they've already played the game and they've learned the concept. All I have to do is remind them that they're lumping steps together. Mm-hmm. And without fail, the clients have learned, have can figure out how to split it into smaller steps on their own unprompted. I yeah. shouldn't say without fail. There've been a couple of times when it's been a tricky behavior that I've had to help them split those steps. But usually once they've played the game and learned the concept, I can just say PB and J and they instantly know, okay, I've asked for this animal to do too many steps and I just yeah. need to break it up into smaller pieces. Yeah. I, I love that game. And I'm trying to think about how I can actually just do it like on the fly in training sessions. Um, I have two things to add. One is I have a client that we're doing a free shape retrieve right now, um, for his lab and he split it on his own. Like I taught him the concept of splitting and then the dog was losing the game, losing the game, losing the game. And then he was like, okay, well, I'm going to leave the training scenario. And his dad, I was like, well, what do you think we should do now? And his dad split it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Like, Thank you. That's that, that would have been like a perfect, right? right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, um, when I do a lot of shelter trainings, I love doing the game, which I'm sure you have done and you probably do where you, you send one person from the audience out of the room. And then we, as a bunch of people, we think about the behavior that we want to shape. We want to click and we want to click and treat or click when they're on the right path to get to the final behavior. And I love doing that exercise because it's fun. Um, but I also love to ask the audience member that comes back in and, and sort of offers behavior and is like confused and doesn't really know what the final goal is to actually talk about their emotional experience of being the dog, right? Um, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to simulate that that person is a dog. We're the trainers. Um, and hey, how was that for you when you had no idea what we wanted? And it was like super obvious to us as the trainer. And they're usually like, that was so frustrating or, or that was easier than I thought or what, whatever the case may be. But I, I like that you can sort of uh, identify how the dog must be feeling during the training process, especially because we know what the behavior or the end goal is. Our canines don't, right? So um, so I, I love, you know, a combination of, of, of these games. Yeah. So great. We, we, we use the shaping game at the end. So all the other training games, including the peanut butter and jelly one, are, are honing specific components of training mechanics. And then the end yeah. game is that shaping game. And it's like you put all of the training skills together totally. into this one big kind of meta game. And I, I love it for the same reason. Not only does it help them learn how to shape behaviors in a low risk, fun setting, totally. but also it's an exercise in empathy. You, mm-hmm. you are much less likely to get frustrated with the animal and blame them for the, their, their difficulties. If you know what it's like to be in their position, if you, if you've yeah. been there and you know what exactly they're experiencing. So, for, I mean, for no other reason than that, even if it didn't totally. teach them anything about shaping, if that's the thing that you remember that empathy and to stop blaming mm-hmm. the animal when they're not successful at learning, yeah. um, that is worth it. And it, in totally. itself for sure. I love that. Thank Thank you for adding that. Yeah. So to just to sort of recap, we talked about um, 
Emily's efficient explanation process. Again, shout out to Tag Teach. Um, using verbal reinforcement to help the client understand that they are on the right path. Choosing incompatible behaviors so that the client can have better mechanics. Um, and then using analogies and games and phrases and hand signals and, and just stuff that helps people remember what it is that they're supposed to be doing and it makes the process fun. So thank you so, so very much today for joining us, Emily. Can you let our listeners know where to find you? Absolutely. Uh, the shelter and rescue behavior program again is called first train home and we can be found at firsttrainhome.org and uh, the book which is probably going to be titled enrichment for the real world uh, can be found through dogwise's website yay and then my personal behavior consulting business is from beaks to barks and our url is beakstobarks.com Awesome. Thank you. And I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And you can find me online at pauseandreward.com. Before we go, please be sure to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. You can also contact at hello at canineconvos.com and that's canine all spelled out we would love to hear from you our theme music is called funny song and it's provided royalty free from bensound.com our audio is mixed and edited by james Edie at beheard.org.uk and lastly our logo is from walker hooper you can find his work on instagram at walkers underscore username thanks so much guys <laughs>